Welcome back to part two of our weird history on sparrows or the sparrow wars, right? Right? Mm -hmm. Right. This one takes place in the U.S. today instead of China. If you want to hear part one, go back to yesterday's episode. <laughs> right. Yes. Highly recommend yesterday's episode. It's interesting for sure. Certainly weird. Uh, unfortunate that so many sparrows had to die. But yeah, this one, no, as far as I know, no sparrows were killed in the making of the American Sparrow War because it's pretty much an academic war. So the American Sparrow War, as it's called, it took place in the mid to late 1800s. And it was, it's, 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 it, uh, it's, I don't even know where to begin with this. It's really interesting, but nowhere near the scale that China did because China was literally a war on sparrows. This was just more of an academic war on sparrows. So starting in around 1850, there were some moth larvae that were dominating New York City and devouring some of the local trees. And there wasn't anything in the ecosystem at the time to eat all the, the larvae that were cropping up so we could figure out how to stop all the trees from being eaten. So those who were in charge came up with what they thought was a brilliant solution. Import European house sparrows to America so they can eat the moths and caterpillars. Yeah, not the best of ideas. Sort of, but not quite. Not, I mean, as you'll come to see, this is America. We just don't, we don't just do things in a good, controlled manner. <laughs> things are excessive here. <laughs> yeah. So very soon, outside of New York City, many other states and major cities uh, particularly on the East Coast, began to import the European house of sparrows. And this would be Maine and Boston, Cincinnati, Rhode Island, Philadelphia, New Haven, Connecticut, and many much more up and down the coast. Philadelphia itself was having a very big problem with inchworms, and city government actually approved the release of 1,000 house sparrows into the city just to eat that inchworms. Let's go overboard, shall we? As I said, America does things excessively. Well, we definitely don't like half, do anything in halves. No. It's either do it or don't do it. Uh, during 1870, the Cincinnati Acclimatization Society also released thousands of birds, including house sparrows, to, quote, aid people against the encroachment of insects. Because we didn't have, I mean, birds eat insects, but we didn't have the kind of birds that would eat the insects that were causing all this shortage of trees and whatnot. Much like many things with animals, as we've gone over in a couple other weird history episodes, the sparrow became incredibly popular, and then there was a fad around the sparrows. Oh, yeah, I would I would go back to our Zarafa or the giraffe that walked across France episode for that one. <laughs> oh. I mean, what's a... What what is that without it being a fad? Come on. I mean, there's also dinosaur diplomacy, zebra diplomacy, giraffe diplomacy, rhino diplomacy. Yeah, it's, it's, an, an, it's yeah. it goes on and on and on and on and on, et cetera, et cetera. So just mm -hmm. times that by infinity and you might get to the end. I mean, we even do that today. Think about how long in the popular consciousness, French bulldogs have been super popular for pop culture they're they're adorable doggies but they've 
sort of dominated the last couple of years or four or five years. I definitely want one. I mean, they're adorable. I think they're adorable. Yeah. They're cute. I mean, I like dogs. I'm, I'm a definitely a doggy person for sure. But it wasn't just a brief fad of Theros, brief fad of sparrows. Um, Theros? I said Theros. It's mummies rising from the ground. We're watching the mummy movie. Oh, <laughs> that's not even where my brain went to. I'm thinking F A R R O W. Like, <laughs> like me of Pharaoh, but in my head, because it's Pharaohs and Pharaohs. But Pharaohs, like Egyptian, that works too. That's not where my brain went in terms of spelling. That's where my brain went, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah, that's where your brain went. <laughs> but for all the sparrows that were released up and down the East Coast, people would also build nest boxes for them because house sparrows are kind of, they will build nests wherever urban areas are and often within buildings and ceilings and stuff. But they will build nests anywhere they can. And so it became a very big fad to breed them and then also build nest boxes all over the city for them. Now, according to Charles Robbins, quote, from 1855 to 1870, there were a few protests from naturalists who opposed the introduction of the bird. These people were outnumbered, however, by those who pressed for more introductions and who provided nest boxes by the thousands and food by the barrels. I'm sorry, but they promoted for more after releasing at least a thousand in Philadelphia alone. And everywhere else there were more released and then we need more? Yeah. Wow. We really don't think things through before we actually- (laughs) Not always, no. What do you mean not always, never? Maybe maybe in early days, but (laughs) not back then. No, not 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 back then or today. So it's either go big or go home, right? There you go. Yeah, he thought of the same thing. Yep. And um, there were even people who were on the side of the sparrows that were trying to even gain full legal protection for them too, because they initially, so given the the like with China, except opposite. So. The sparrows usually eat insects, or at least when they're in early development, they'll eat insects and then move on to seeds and grains. So in China, they decide that they're eating our seeds and grains, so we need to eradicate the sparrows, and then the insect population booms. And then here in the U.S., it's the opposite. We had a big boom in insect population, introduce the sparrows, but they only eat insects up until a certain point in development, and then they eat grains and seeds. So it's not exactly the best of solutions because they can only eat so many. But now people are going, they're here. Let's make sure no one can kill them because they're doing the job we asked them to do. At least that's the way it seemed to start off with. Well, yeah, and then it just, you you released so many. I can only imagine what happens when they ate up all the little insects and and seeds and stuff. What happens next? Jeez. (laughs) There's just an overabundant amount. Yeah. Well, what happened next is they flew west. Oh, no. The U.S. is huge. There's a lot of farmland, especially back in the 1800s. There was tons more farmland than there are now. And you're going to have grain silos and feed stores for the farming 
So yeah. But there's a ton of farmland. And again, you and you and I spoke about this, but we take up these, we, as in the United States of America, we take up basically half a continent. Yeah. I mean, it's give or take 3000 miles coast to coast, not including obviously Hawaii. Yeah. Minimally. It's a lot of space. It's several, we're, we are several European countries wide. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people realize how big we are. I don't think so. I mean, I, I mean, sometimes, I mean, we live here and sometimes it's still hard for us to even realize how large we are. Yeah. I mean, if we take someplace like, oh, I don't know, the UK, it would fit in like the little, little Massachusetts, Massachusetts, like Connecticut and, and Rhode Island area. That's the entirety of the UK. I think so. If you're just going with Britain, I think Britain's about the size of Connecticut. Yeah. Basically take Israel. It's the same size as Connecticut. Basically. It's so, so small in comparison to what we are as a country. I mean, the state of Texas is bigger than most European countries. That is very true. It's just, it's crazy sometimes to think about the scale of that. It's just, fan, it's just sometimes unfathomable how big the U.S. really is. It's mind-blowing. Right. So now you've got birds that are invasive and a ton of farmland out west, and they're hungry. And there's literally nothing stopping them from migrating because they're birds. They're not hard. They're not easy to catch. And they, they're they in flocks. And they, they breed relatively quickly. So that was a, started off with a good idea and then became a really big impact, particularly on farmlands. Because again, adult sparrows mostly eat grains and seeds. And what do farmlands have abundance of? Grains and seeds. Now, another major food source that probably, I think to us today at least, comes from the unlikeliest of places. Would you like to think, take a guess as to where that came from? It is the 1800s, remember. Where did it come from? No guessing today? No, not, no. You probably wouldn't guess it anyway. It's not something I would have thought of. Horses eat a lot of grains and seeds and they poop a lot oh yeah and everybody back then rode horses or carriages or wagons and horses were far more abundant horses were obviously the cars of today so i was gonna say that they were the main means of transportation either that or you walked yeah so not just animal poop again the general uh, the, well, the uh, the feed stores all around the country, but then there was also tons of garbage because it's civilization. There's always garbage. Now, by the 1870s, so about 15, 20 years ish after the and the species became definitely invasive, two schools of thought began. Group one believed that the species were too invasive and needed to be eradicated from the entire country. And group two believe that sparrows should just be left alone. And their reasoning was literally, quote, they didn't ask to be brought to this country, so we should just leave them alone. Sounds like the argument I didn't ask to be born. It sounds like an argument towards slavery, too, but in the opposite direction. Exactly. They didn't ask to be brought here. But were they left alone? Nope. 
do we ever leave anyone alone? No. And, and humans on humans is a whole different thing than humans versus animals. Uh, it's just I'm just saying you things way too differently when it's species to species. Oh yeah. Oh, totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I yeah, not gonna get into that though. Now, by the 1870s, everything had progressed to the point where what is now called the American Sparrow Wars had officially taken place. And people from both sides of the arguments, and I will get into it. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh yeah. They'll write scathing, and I mean scathing, criticisms of both sides and newspapers, journals, popular magazines, academic journals, especially, but it would, you had people who were expert ornithologists, people who thought they were ornithologists, and then just the people who were just interested in the sparrows and thought that they were the cool fad and wanted to save the sparrows. So you got people from both sides tearing apart each other on the opposite side. And it gets, it, it's great. So one of the major anti-sparrow advocates was Elliot Coos, who was an ornithologist as well as a medical doctor. And he also just doesn't seem like a very nice person. And I'll, <laughs> I'm, uh, I will read some quotes from him that he'd written about the opposite side. So this, he's anti-sparrow. He's writing these scathing comments towards people on the, the Save the Sparrows side. <sighs> you ready? Probably not, but go yeah. for it anyway. So, first, he writes, it is very regrettable that the sparrow question should have degenerated into such a miserable personal controversy between the sentimentalist who misrepresent the facts and the ornithologist who understand them. There is not a scientific ornithologist in America who is in favor of the wretched interlopers which we have so thoughtlessly introduced played with cuddled like a parcel of hysterical slate pencil eating schoolgirls. so harsh yeah you'll come to find particularly in the next quote coos i just don't think like people but especially females and old people and children yeah, I mean, it sounds like he didn't even like himself. He may not have. I don't know. He just seems to me like one of those people who just does not like humanity and would rather spend time amongst the animals and the, the taxidermy. I don't know that he even had a good praise to say about men, let alone mankind. Yeah, I mean, we both know how I feel about working. I There's a reason I chose archaeology and I work with the dead because I them over the living majority of the time yeah you're not quite still, a people person yeah i know but i still like living people <laughs> well i'll read you this next uh quote from him it's great so he writes the friends of the sparrow in this country fall into the following categories first those who know nothing and care nothing particularly about them except that they rather like the pert and brusque familiarity of the birds, a class composed chiefly of children, women, and old fogies. He literally wrote old fogies. Secondly, those who are or were instrumental in getting the birds here. Thirdly, 
quasi-ornithologists who have been misled into hasty expressions of opinion to which they feel bound to stick to. Old fogey. He's an old fogey for using that sentence. I mean, previously he wrote hysterical slate pencil eating schoolgirls. He just doesn't like people, I'm pretty sure. But these are scathing comments. They're terrible. They're, they're terrible. And these are comments from the 1870s. They're terrible and really cruel, actually. Oh, I just don't think he's a very nice guy. I mean, obviously, he's not a nice guy, but he, I just get the sense he does not like people. You ready for some more? Always. <laughs> so another quote he writes down, obviously bashing the Save the Sparrows side, is the introduction of these exotics clutter up ornithology in a way that a student of geographical distribution may deplore and interferes decidedly with the balance of power among native species. Whatever may be said to the contrary, notwithstanding, these sparrows do molest, harass, drive off, and otherwise maltreat and forcibly eject and attempt to destroy various kinds of native birds, which are thereby deprived of certain inalienable rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness after their own fashion. Really? Mm -hmm. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Really? For an animal. Alrighty. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, as soon as I read that, I was like, uh, you're going into my notes. <laughs> but yeah, inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to uh, just do your own thing. But he does have a bit of a point how sparrows are tad invasive in terms of they live in urban areas and can drive other birds and other types of sparrows from their nests and take over. So he's got a point in that. And the fact that the sparrows were invasive and then started to force the native species off of their, out of their own nests and trees to take over. I'm not disagreeing with that part of the statement. Coos would also go on to state that the introduction of the European sparrow was akin to the introduction of the Norway rat and white, re white weed. And his statement was rebuted by a reader at the time who stated, quote, the author has divided the bird's friends into five categories, four of them composed of idiots and the fifth of the weak-minded. Wow. That's the rebuttal against Coos, against his previous statements we just mentioned. I mean, geez, everyone's so harsh. I said it's a full-on academic war. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't expecting someone to be that dang harsh. We're not done. Oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> oh, we're not done. I'm not done with the story. Oh, no. I think I'm on page five of my notes, six, maybe. So on the side of the sparrows, we just talked about anti-sparrow Elliot Coos. On the side of the sparrows is Thomas Mayo Brewer, who was a Boston-based physician and ornithologist, as well as also Henry Berg, who is a founding member of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which is also particularly founded to help save the sparrows. So this quote-unquote war between the two sides went on for years. Mostly because not much was ever really done about the sparrow problem. So instead of putting something into action to help solve it, they just 
bashed each other academically, publicly and academically. What's years, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years? Getting on the higher end there. Yeah. 40 years? No, no. I'm just saying on the higher end that we're talking 10 plus. Oh, okay. That's an entire decade of your life. You just spent minimally. Yes. Sparrows. Wow. Well, technically it would, it would, it would go on from, like I said, so a sparrow introduction was around the 19, the 19, the 1850s, 1855 or so. And then the next 10 to 15 years, they realized how bad the problem really was and how unhelpful the sparrows were in eradicating or solving the issue that they originally were brought in for. And then of course they're birds. So there's, I mean, what happened in China in the late, you know, from 58 to 60 is completely unheard of. And it obviously is not something that's going to happen here at any time in our own history. We we did it to people. We're not going to do it to animals. Apparently we're not that heartless, whatever. But I don't think, I mean, there, there was talk about maybe killing them, but then you, you literally released hundreds of thousands of sparrows into the country. You're not going to be able to get every single one of them, even if you tried, especially not in a country this large and China's large to begin with, but they had a lot more people back then. I mean, China's always had a lot of people. I was going to say they're known for overpopulation. Yeah. Yeah. But also, yeah, of course you're not. You went extremely overboard on the amount of sparrows that you technically needed in the first place like there and there's no way you're going to catch every single one they're going to create a new migratory pattern right and in order to find food if you i mean even if you starve them out in certain places they're going to find food elsewhere just like we talked about in the part one where they were dri- driven over to the polish embassy yeah because not everyone is going to say no food for you little sparrow no food for you like no 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 place across the united states is going to have a 100 percent agreeability on that no of course not i mean there's no place in the u.s has a pretty much a 100 percent agreeability on anything really no never would have guessed that no no soup for you <laughs> no soup for me <laughs> so one of the quotes in relations to the uh the the sparrow versus anti-sparrow wars was the sparrow was performing the splendid work of ridding american cities of insects and pests as it had for centuries in europe and brewer also predicted that the house of sparrow will ere long become one of our most common and familiar favorites so that is a sentimentality of the save the sparrows faction of the sparrows war rather than obviously the anti-sparrow and Brewer and Coos would be the two major leaders on both their sides, both being actual ornithologists, both being medical doctors, and both being highly opinionated and vocal on their sides of the war. What are they not opinionated and vocal? Academics? Yeah. I mean... All you have to do is look at us. We're not even truly academics. <laughs> we both have degrees. Thank you so very much. Yeah, we do. But <laughs> we're just not like, experts. We're not experts and we don't work in academics in that sense. Yeah, and we also I definitely don't claim to be experts. 
I'm knowledgeable on a lot of small stuff, but that doesn't make me an expert. Yeah, I'm not not an expert in anything in that, right. that sense. No, absolutely not. So like I said, the say the sparrows faction were all like, these are gonna be helpful, build the nest, breed them, make them into like they'll take care of themselves, do it let them be. And obviously anti-sparrows were like, we need to get rid of them. They are causing so much trouble. So anti-sparrow coups would actually go on to write, quote, there is no occasion for them in this country. The good they do in destroying certain insects has been overrated. I foresee the time when it will be deemed advisable to take measures to get rid of the birds or at least check their increase. And he's correct on that. Brewer responded to this specific statement by attacking Coos, saying, the naturalist generally so well-informed as Dr. Coos could be guilty of prejudice and of making statements not based on firsthand observation. I don't know if that's true, but my question would be, how would we check their entry? What, what would be the process for that? No, 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 not entry, increase. Oh, increase. How, how in the world would we control that when they're in the wild? Entry, increase, either way, it doesn't seem controllable. Try to find ways not for them to get to the grains and seeds. I'm assuming. Oh, aside from killing them right outright, but also probably trying to find ways for them not to get to a food source or at least an adequate food source and starve them out. That, that would be my thought. Giving coups, that's my thought. Okay. Now, given that last statement by Brewer, uh, yeah, it would, it, that, that's, that, that, there's, it just, uh, all right, we're going to get some more into it. That's where they are. And then a few years later, it continued and continued. And between Brewer and Coos, it became incredibly heated by about 1874, 1875. And in exchange between both of them and the Washington Gazette in June of 1877, Brewer insinuated that Coos believed that a lie well stuck to being as good as the truth. Meaning that Coos knew it. it Brewer stated that Coos was stupid and didn't know what he was talking about. Now, Brewer would actually go on to apologize for this slander the following month in July. And then Coos publicly accepting his apology. Yet they would continue to write scathing letters to each other about each other in public journals and all that. Now, very soon, another ally for the sparrows would be found in a man named Henry Ward Beecher, who was a clergyman. In 1877, he denounced Coos and claimed that his opinions were, quote, treason because he had incited a riot against them them being the sparrows he also said that coos better make his will and settle up his early affairs in the face of dire consequences that would befall him death threats dang death threats by a clergyman not only that he's saying coos better make his will and pray to go to heaven because of all the stuff he said against the sparrows are surely going to put him in hell that's exactly what he just said Settle up his earthly affairs because of the dire consequences that will befall him oh dear lord this poor dude's going to heaven i mean hell <laughs> i'm and not done with that one devil. either and meeting the devil over some birds 
It's, it gets even better than that. Is that possible? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so if that last statement did not make you laugh hard enough, get ready. We've heard bits from both Coos and Brewer attacking each other in academic slander. Get ready for, for clergy slander against an academic. You ready to go? All right. Henry Ward Beecher, after telling, insinuating that Coos knew nothing of what he was talking about and he better settle up his earthly affairs, would go on to write about Coos. No raven shall ever bring him his meat. His name shall be known in the kingdom of birds as a public foe. A price shall be put upon his head, and on the same day, unawares, he shall be surrounded by swarms of sparrows, darkening the sun, and multitudinous as the locusts of Minnesota. Each bird shall nip him. He shall grow small by degrees and beautifully less until the last thread of his garment and the last hair on his head shall be borne away in triumph to the line, the nest in which the valiant sparrow shall give its now native country another brood of these vigorous workers. No requiem shall be heard. Even the tender dove, as it coos over Dr. Coos, will mingle in its tender chant of strain of satisfied and gratified justice, and sparrows shall have peace in all the land. I'm sorry, repeat that? The entire thing? Oh, Matt, go ahead. That sounds like Poe. It just sounds like Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. I would love, given that, you know, the Raven, I would yeah, love yeah. to hear, I would say this as well, 30, 40 years after Poe died. I would have loved to hear some, something like this, Poe writing about it. That would have been hilarious. It just, but it's it Victorian, yeah. it's, it's Victorian flowy words. I mean, it's just, it's, it's how they wrote. But it he's is. also a clergyman. So this is probably how he would write his sermons because it's very sermony, but also kind of, fire brimstone going to hell sermony of course because what else do they preach so yes that was <laughs> that was a, a great piece of preaching if you will from uh henry beecher the clergyman on the side of the sparrows and then the following year in 1878 the heatedness between coos and brewer grew even more if it could even get more uh, Coos was in his office in D.C. when Brewer confronted Coos at his job. And because of this, Coos insisted that the Natal Ornithology Club, which Brewer was a member, investigate Brewer's actions. And there's no specifics as to what happened during this confrontation, but enough to the point where Coos is like, uh, he bothered me at work. You need to investigate him. <laughs> Um, so Brewer died in 1880, just a couple years after that incident, and Coos, again, on the opposing side, despite his uh, quote-unquote nemesis having now passed away, Coos was still attacking Brewer, even in death. The dude's already dead! It's still the side of Sparrows versus Anti-Sparrows faction, so he and Brewer was the leader of the Save the Sparrows faction, essentially. So yeah, he would also, Coos would go on after Brewer died to call him 
a narrow-minded, prejudiced, and tactless person who has done incalculable harm and whose name deserves to be stigmatized as long as there is a sparrow left in the U.S. Well, that's going to be there forever, so we're kind of yeah. too late now. I said, these are scathing remarks. I'm here for it. There's not a lot of academic warring going on, and I am so here for it. So uh, eventually, Coos would uh, go on to propose solutions to this invasive sparrows problem. <sighs> I think you'll enjoy these. So first, he called for an extended study that would show once and for all that the birds actually ate more grain and then they did insects and did more harm, which eventually would be proven correct and that because that's what they do. He, despite knowing that that's going to be true in the report, he would go on to say that a wholesale slaughter of the sparrows would not be feasible, but he wanted to find a way to diminish their numbers. So he told people to stop feeding them and stop creating nest boxes, which so starve them out and not allow them to nest. He would also try to repeal various laws that had been put in place over the years that prohibited the killing of sparrows and insisted that they be used in targets for shooting matches. This mm. guy really hated sparrows. Mm. And um, almost all of this information came from one source. It's on JSTOR, so I'm not sure how publicly available it is, but it's a 13-page a article, I suppose, pamphlet. I'm sure it's 13 pages, it's not long, called Elliot Coos and the Sparrows War and was written in 1978. So just FYI, in case anyone's interested in reading some more of the stuff I didn't have in all my notes. Yeah, so, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Over the next several years, so written now into the 1880s, as the sparrow population obviously didn't seem to decline, Coos would eventually begin to admit his defeat, though he still believed his stance was correct and he was correct. It's just nothing happened. No one technically believed him. And out of the like now nearly 20 years of fighting against this, he's just like, I'm done fighting. And he specifically wrote, I could whip all of my featherless foes, but the sparrows proved too many for me. I led the sparrow war for 20 years and only surrendered to the inevitable. You may do what you please, shoot or poison as many as you can, more will come to the funeral, and nothing you can do will make any appreciable difference. The case is hopeless. At least he finally got it. What? No, but he was on the right track in terms of we released too many. I mean, if we had not released hundreds of thousands of them into the environment, it probably would never have gotten this far in terms of academic sparring. Again, we don't do anything in halfsies in the yeah. United States of America. This yeah. is America. Yeah. So apparently, though he was defeated by the birds, or if you will, Coos never forgot his mission towards them being anti-sparrow. And apparently in the book, Citizen Bird, an ornithology book for children written partly by Coos, he puts himself as the lead character named Dr. Rue Hunter. In the book, Dr. Hunter, quote, introduces his niece and nephew and their little friends to the wonder of the bird world. While admonishing his pupils to not kill their feathered friends, 
he accepts the English sparrow, which meddles with the nest of useful birds and is a nuisance to his humans as well as bird neighbors. Dr. Hunter goes on to state that the English sparrow, which is a disreputable tramp, hates honest work like all vagrants. Maybe don't write a children's book when you don't like kids. You know, I didn't even think about that. I'd forgotten. I've had that in my notes that he clearly did not seem to like kids. How do you forget that after all the harsh stuff he said about him? Because I was more entertained by all the other stuff I've read so far. I'm sorry. But I'm I still sorry. like the quote that's literally in the book. Dr. Hunter, the character in a children's book, specifically says that the English sparrow, which is the only bird you should not accept in terms of killing, is a disreputable tramp who hates honest work like all vagrants. The Victorians had some stuff they put in their kids' books, that's all I'm saying. I mean, they were the Victorians. All we have to do is look at the episode on Victorian uses for mummies. This is Victorian children's, but they also had some really weird names for Victorian children, and I don't, I'm here for it. Oh, I'm saying if they were crazy amongst themselves, they're definitely going to be terrible with their kids. Uh, they were just terrible to ch- children as a whole. Exactly. I, I mean, mean four-year-olds were chimney sweeps and stuff, even if they weren't allowed to be doing so, or at least in England, they were technically weren't allowed to be doing work, but there was so much child labor. It was, they were awful to children. And, but we're almost done. So um, by the 1880s, so by the late 1880s, particularly, many who had actually been on the side of the sparrows finally, after 30 plus years, are now realizing that this, quote, colonization of sparrows has now become a nationwide fiasco. Because again, originally, the birds were brought in to eat the insects. And only during up to a certain stage in their development do they eat insects and then go on to start eating grains and seeds, which obviously affects all the farmlands and the grain silos and the feed stores. Many states and citizens and cities began to change their regulations and their minds and to allow extermination of the birds. Some agencies even offered bounties on the amounts of sparrows that were killed. Though again, never to the extent as the Chinese Sparrow War. Unfortunately, this also proved to be very futile, at least in America. Again, it's huge, but we don't have nearly the amount of people back then as China even did in the 58 to 60. But house sparrows breed quickly. And when you don't have millions upon millions of people trying to eradicate them, you're not going to stop the spread of the sparrows. You, you, you know the saying, breed like rabbits, should be breed like sparrows. <laughs> Uh, yeah although when i think of breed like bab- rabbits my brain generally goes straight to bonobos but that might just be me yes obviously it's going to be futile coos would die knowing he was correct but knowing that there was nothing he could do personally to solve the issue but would lived long enough to see people begin to change their minds on their stance of the amount of sparrows that were at least released into the environment. But it it literally would not be until the turn of the century when the sparrow population would begin to at least level out. 
And I mentioned earlier a major food source for sparrows. So try to take a guess as to why the sparrow population by 1900 began to level out and slowly decline. Cars. Yep. Instead of horses. Yep. Horsepower instead of horses. Yeah, exactly. One report actually stated that one horse produces 50 pounds of grains and seed fill manure per day. And without the manure as a major food source, the population declined. And that's one horse. So we're talking an average horse is 50 pounds of poop a day, which is, I mean, the horses are big, so it's a lot of poop in the first place, let alone throughout the day, you're gonna poop most multiple times. But that's one horse. We're talking horses were the major form of transportation. There were horses up and down streets. Most streets were muddy from poop. There weren't really sidewalks in, in a lot of places, especially about out west. Now I'm thinking Tombstone and Deadwood and stuff. I mean, it's just a lot of places did not have city structures to have the horses off in one area, but everyone's going to have horses. And then you have the carts and carriages having four plus horses and farmlands having horses and they were just everywhere. Anyone who could own a horse had a horse. And then of course you had the military having horses. Yeah, they were everywhere. And the Mounties. That's, thanks, Canada. I was thinking the Texas Rangers. Thank you. And the Dragoon, some, Texas Dragoon. Well, I was just thinking across because I'm, I'm going to assume that the sparrows migrated up into Canada. I'm just assuming the, mar- the sparrows just migrate wherever they can find food like any animal. Therefore, they definitely went into Canada. No, probably. I'm sure. Although it does get a little colder up there than maybe what they prefer, but I'm sure that they did. But yeah, that's the end of the academic war on the sparrows. I must say, I definitely like this episode better than China. Oh, for sure. I, I needed to tell the story about China because it was really interesting. It's not a good oh, yeah. story. It did at least it had a good outcome eventually, but it, it's not a happy story for the most part. Certainly weird, but not a, not a happy story. This one, enjoyably weird. Yes. Yes, it was. No. That is the end of part two on the Sparrow Wars. Well, that'll do for part two of this episode mm-hmm. of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all. And no, we're never going to get that down. Uh-uh. Nope. Uh-uh. Nope. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.